Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Here's the terrible, beautiful truth. No one cares. There is no line between good and evil. There's only what a man can stand. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, Happy New Year. What's your resolution? Are you going to try to cut back just a little bit on your moral grandstanding? <laughs> Here's some moral grandstanding for you. Yeah. Uh, I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. That is I'm, already. I'm, 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 I'm one of those annoying people who doesn't, doesn't like New Year's resolutions. Um, it, and it has a moralistic tinge to it. I sort of believe, like, if you were going to change, you wouldn't need a special date to change. Like, I don't really believe that anybody's <laughs> going to stick to their shit past, like, January 20. And I'll tell a little story of a friend of mine in college named Tony Young, who will never listen to this. Shout out, Tony Young. One of my best friends. He's a, he's a kid from Compton that, that I went to college with, and he's been my friend now for 20 years, one of my best friends. I just Why won't you listen, then? Um, because he doesn't give a fuck about this. <laughs> he, he, was very, he was very smooth with the ladies, and uh, to this day, we make fun of him. In 1996, he uh, decided that he was going to devote his life to God a bit more. We were in college, religious college. Mm-hmm. He, wanted, he wanted to be a better person. And so in 1996, when he would have been about 20 years old, I guess, uh, he made a famous declaration to all of us, no sex in 96. And I always laugh because I think he made it to January 20th. (laughs) 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 That's that's pretty much how I feel about New Year's resolutions. Like, well, first of all, you shouldn't like deride a practice just because you're not good at it. Like, I don't. I don't think I'm not good at golf, but I don't think like nobody should play golf just because I'm not good at golf. (laughs) You know, I'm a psychologist. I study human nature, and it just is the case that people just don't stick to this. We've had this conversation, but I and I told you, and you, I thought you were going to listen to this, but apparently not. Nothing sticks. You should resolve to listen to me more if you make the resolutions by month rather than so you start in january and you go these are my resolutions for january Uh, this is your hack then then, this is my life hack uh (laughs) life hacks by tamler summers so then it works and like so i did that for meditating and it stuck the whole year so like counterexample already like oh good yes i should say it's not impossible 
It's not, yeah. It is not impossible. I'm just I, one of those exceptional human beings. I no. It's just that I when I need when I see a need for change in life, I just make it. I don't wait until January first. See, the, it's a know. Kantian <laughs> thing. It's like you shouldn't need to like if it comes from the fact that it's New Year's, then there's not enough moral worth to it, right? Like that's no, no, what it no. Is. It's just that when you notice that a difference needs to you know take like a change needs to be made, then you should just do it. It all boils down to Kant. I'm just constantly improving myself. I guess is what I'm saying. Constantly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so today we are going to be talking about moral grandstanding. You've already seen an example of that with, uh, well, probably both of us, actually. Um, there's a paper that just came out in Philosophy and Public Affairs called Moral Grandstanding, and that's what we'll talk about in the second segment. In the first segment, we're going to talk about um, the edge.org question of the year. This has been something that they've done for uh, a bunch of years, right? Yeah, so I think they started maybe 2006 or something like that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, edge.org. It's like a, it's a collection of, it's, it's run by the, the literary agent John Brockman, um, whose agency represents you. And if I ever did a book, I guess me, <laughs> um, <laughs> that probably won't happen. But they collect a bunch a of thinkers. Yeah, one day. Um, I'm going to call it a very, bad, a very bad wizard. <laughs> um, uh, they, they collect a bunch of thinkers and they ask the, uh, one question per year. They call it the question center. Even though I'm represented by the agency, as you said, this was the first year they asked me to do it. But they asked me very late, like kind of an afterthought, like with like a week and a half to go or two weeks to go or whatever. So I didn't do it. I kind of regret it. I don't like. So the question was. So tell, say what the question is. So the question this year is: What scientific term or concept ought to be more widely known? And there's 207 uh, people who responded, of which Tambler is not one. I think I would have done, and I don't think you would guess this. Explanandum. Oh. Because a lot of the ones were already taken. Explanandum, the thing to be explained. I think a lot of the debates in our country, in our discourse, are the result of uh, not enough precision or agreement on what the explanandum is. What is the thing that you're trying to explain? And so if you have two different explanandums, you're going to have two different explanations, and the explanations will be talking past each other, not disagree. That's, it. That's good, actually. That uh, I think that there is recently, um, maybe we could do uh, an episode on this. But recently, there's there's been some extra debate about the implicit association test and its pre predictive validity. And I think one of the problems in that debate is is that people are trying to explain different things yes. with this. Um, yeah, so I think it happens a lot yeah. in debates yeah. about the efficacy of social sciences. Actually, yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, but unfortunately, you didn't do it ne no. next year. <laughs> it's just as good to talk about it. That's here. right. Uh, yeah, I did do one, and yes. you, if you want to know my thoughts on it, we have a whole episode on when we when we talked about the paper by Dan Kahan. But it, mine was on motivated reasoning. Yeah. Um, so we'll put a link to to all 207 of these. Um, but we thought for t for today we would just t talk about maybe one or two of our favorites from the others right. all right so i picked three one that i thought was just the best name 
like the best like word that I didn't know. Uh, one that I thought was so ridiculous that it's almost like it was a parody, but I don't think it was. And then uh, one that is actually my favorite, and I and besides yours, which is so my, mine was. I assume that mine was just clearly yeah, the, yeah. your topic. Oh, okay, go ahead, start. All right, well, I'll do the one that I just think is the best word: the schnit. <laughs> so there's <laughs> something called the schnit. God, which who one did is this? this? The schnit. Oh, it's Gazaniga. That's why I didn't put it down because oh, yeah, yeah. I know him. Uh, sort of. Uh, Michael Gazaniga, uh, the schnit. So the schnitt is the gap between quantum and classical physics and the one that so flummoxed, you know, Einstein and, uh, you know, they can't figure out how to unify these two really highly predictive theories in physics. Again, I chose this mostly because of the name. But I think Gesenica's <laughs> idea is that this can, you know, that this can apply to a lot of different things like consciousness, you know, how, how we have these two levels of explanation when it comes to consciousness, the neural level and the phenomenal level. Um, so there, there's these theories or phenomena that are uh, referring to the same thing but are at two different levels the theories are at two different levels and they don't go together. We can't figure out how to make them fit together. And when you have something like that, you call it the schnit. <laughs> the schnit. Snoop Dogg would call it the shiznit. Shiznit, uh, yeah. Sh- <laughs> so one of my favorite, because it almost makes exactly the point that I was trying to make. My, mine was unmotivated reasoning, but Brian Eno, who you may know from such... Uh, Musical groups is Talking Heads. Oh yeah, and and a producer for U two and Coplay. Uh, he wrote two sentences, so I'll just read them. It's on confirmation bias. The great promise of the internet was that more information would automatically yield better decisions. The great disappointment is that more information actually yields more possibilities to confirm what you already believed anyway. It's yeah. very nice. That's succinct. very succinct and <laughs> very true. <laughs> um, That's great. So. Um, Okay, what's your other one? All right, so the one that I thought was the most ridiculous, I, I, I honestly can't believe this, because if, if you reverse the question and you just said, like, <laughs> what's the one term that really doesn't need to ever be said again or talked about again, in, uh, I might have come up with this one, <laughs> the trolley problem. Oh, that's right. Daniel Rockmore, <laughs> professor of mathematics. It, it's so funny. I, and I don't know. Maybe we're just coming at this from a distorted lens or something. But the way he talks about it, like, so it starts out, the history of science is littered with, quote, thought experiments, a term dreamed up by Albert Einstein, Gedanken experiments for an imagined scenario able to sharply articulate, like, I don't know. I, I feel. I think the trolley problem has been like deeply ingrained into the public <laughs> consciousness. Number one. Number two. It, enough. 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 And people, stop sending us trolley problem tweets. We love our <laughs> listeners. We love when they point us out to things. I mean, you know, the paper we're doing today sent. But but no more trolley problems. I'm done. Done. I'm done even making fun of it. I'm done. Like except now. 
and anyway, he thinks it's going to be like really important you know, for driverless cars to know what people think about tri- uh, trolley problems. So there's yeah. also this, we've talked about this, but. For somebody who hates the trolley problem, we, we yeah. sure talked about it a lot. And I'll um, probably teach it in, in ethics <laughs> in like a month. <laughs> well, yeah. So I have, I have the same intuition and I thought to myself, well, maybe I'm just, it's just, you know, it's just too close for me. But I was just over a break talking to a little cousin of mine who's a physics major. And he's like, are you kidding me? Everybody knows the trolley, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> so it definitely doesn't see, you know, it may be important, but it's certainly. Well, no, it definitely isn't important. Well. It's not. It's, just, it's important in some sense that it it led to a lot of people dissing the trolley problem. And, and, it, and it's actually a helpful way of illustrating the difference between consequentialism and deontology right. and. Um, right. and, and there's some, there's some valid, it led to Chip Ellsworth the <laughs> third. So. And that's how we met. Oh, and um, that's how you and I met. So <laughs> <laughs> we're like, I uh, love the trolley problem. He's totally right. <laughs> Daniel Rockmore. <laughs> um, but, so, but he needs to get out more. That's, that's my, re- that's my recommendation. That's should be his new year. And I understand he lives in Hanover, New Hampshire, but he, he needs to get know, out. He more. might not know that, that people know about this. Yeah, you know, he hasn't asked around. There, there were a few of these that I thought, you know, I mean, you know, like natural selection. You know, probably people need to know. People probably need to learn more about it. But, but it's not like they don't know what it right. is. Right. I mean, <laughs> exactly. it's, you know, so a lot of friends of the podcast actually answered uh, some of these. Um, we Jennifer, Jennifer Jack Wett. Yeah. Um, she's. Um, What's hers? But oh, it's the, the Anthropocene. 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 What um, is that? It's just essentially uh, treating this age of the Earth as the one in which humans have been the primary sort of causal shaper of the Earth as a planet. Um, I like Haldane's rule of the right size. What's that, like 10 inches? (laughs) (laughs) It's actually actually 6.5, that's what I've been told. That's the right. right? Like right? that's like the bear, bear. <laughs> The one one of them that I really liked was by the physicist Lisa Randall, um, effective theory. Um, in a nutshell, she she goes in depth, but in a nutshell, it's it's just sort of the notion that our theories explain a s- observed phenomenon and they're useful. It's sort of a, a uh, uh, an appeal to remember that theories are pragmatic in that they. So, so Newtonian mechanics is a useful theory for um, describing the motion of objects that are the size of things that we deal with, right? But it certainly isn't describing uh, a more fundamental reality. That doesn't doesn't mean that we should discard it because it's actually really useful. Um, uh, the example that she gives is that we we call a chair solid, even though it is you know the the atoms, the, the space between the particles, like electrons and, and the atomic nucleus, is, is so much greater than the actual mass that's there, but they feel solid to us and it makes sense to call them solid and we can have a theory of solid objects. So it's kind of an appeal to a pragmat uh, understanding that theories don't necessarily need to describe all of ultimate reality at every level of analysis, but that some theories are good just because um, they, they are practical. Um, yeah, that whole solid thing never made sense to me. It's like... I don't think that we have this conception of solidity where it's like atoms are all packed together, run one right uh, uh, next to the other. By solid, we just mean 
that the like this is something we can sit on and when you know we can't go through and when we hit it, it will hurt our right hands our and, atoms. I, yeah. I I mean I think that there is something counterintuitive about the thought that that like my hand and the chair are characterized mostly by empty space yet they hit into each other right so well, no it's, but it's, that's not what we mean by empty space and it's not what we mean by solidity so it's just not true that you're uh, hand is mostly empty space. I, I think that we do mean empty space when we start describing the space between em- between electrons and, and atomic nuclei and the, dif- the distance between atoms. Like I think we really do mean that as empty space. I think that it's just the emergent property of solidity doesn't need atoms to be close together. Uh, see, I, now we need some experimental philosophy. To settle <laughs> this, but How I many disagree. people? I don't think people poll. have an underlying atomic theory of matter when they use things. No, like, but when you but uh, when you calculate the distance between objects, so I say that this chair and this table have empty space between them. I think that is the same exact intuition when I measure the distance between an, uh, an electron and a proton. That's just what I mean by empty space. Like, there's no violation of the intuition of, of solidity. It's just, if you told, right, if you told me that a bunch of, like, if I see a tree from really, really far away, and it just looked like one green blob, and then I get up close, and I'd say, oh, look at all the empty space between the leaves. I wouldn't have known that. Like, that's just what what we mean. I, I don't, I'm not following. But maybe I know. we should, I maybe know we should save this for a... <laughs> For a whole, for a whole, whole like metaphysics, philosophy of science uh, uh, episode, because I, 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 this is something I actually think this is at the heart of what's wrong with metaethics. What's wrong with a lot of things is that people impute empty uh, space. Uh, un, yeah, well, no, <laughs> uh, the empty space <laughs> in my brain. That people <laughs> impute sort of underlying metaphysical or metaethical theories to uh, when they aren't. That that's really not what's driving the discourse. I so I think that it's uh, just my final thing to say about this is that I think that you think that physicists care about other people's intuitions and they don't. They care about their own intuitions. And when they discovered that there was nothing there, they were surprised. That's it. They don't yeah. care what we think. That's fine. <laughs> but that's not you know when they describe it as empty space, even though it's solid. They're, they they need they need to um, given that they're now talking to us and not themselves they need to understand that that's not what we mean by empty space and that's not what we mean by so you're right yeah. I'll let you have the last word <laughs> it was, is nothing I'll I have to shut my mouth all right um, so let my one that I really liked I think my so there was one that I didn't know anything about the Texas sharpshooter um, mm-hmm. and I just urge listeners to go look at it it seems like a really interesting way to understand statistical um what's the word it's sort of a it's sort of a a good metaphor for p-hacking yeah exactly so circling the bullets after and then the one i thought is just the best in terms of it just answered the question perfectly is the entry on bayes theorem um by the physicist uh, Sean Carroll. It, it's it's definitely a term that I think people have heard of, but not everyone knows exactly what it is. And he gives this is what I think Edge, when it works well, does better than anybody. He just gives a really you know succinct three paragraph description of what Bayes theorem is, how we 
often apply it unconsciously, though not perfectly. And um, yeah, so if you don't, if if you've heard everybody talking about Bayes' theorem and don't know what it is, and want a really easy, accessible explanation, so that you can go, oh yeah, I do that. Um, I would, I would point you to that. Uh, I agree. Um, uh, the only thing I disagree with is the use of apostrophe s after an s. Bayes's theorem. Yeah, no. you just go with the apostrophe. I do that. Yeah, too. yeah, for names especially. You yeah, know, having growing up having to say Jesus's yeah. children. <laughs> if you can get past that, though, if the listeners can get past that, I, I recommend that. And you know, like I think it would be helpful if people could like say I've I've had to change my priors, and you would know what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that it's it is one of the most useful concepts ever. Yeah. Um, all right. All right. We'll be right back to talk about moral grandstanding. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Today we're going to be talking about moral grandstanding, a new paper out in philosophy and public affairs. Um, but first we want to take some time and thank all the people who get in touch with us um, and criticize us, disagree with us, agree with us. Um, you can reach us on Twitter at Tamler at Peas. You can send us an email, verybadwizards at gmail.com. We read all the emails. We swear. Um, you can like us on Facebook and post on Facebook. We had interesting couple of posts and comments on our last episode, one of which, again, somewhat randomly, but I took some time to really yeah. <laughs> respond to at some length. Yeah, I was gonna say like like we should do devote some time to, to following up on. I think that that's an important thing to clarify because yeah. we yeah it's about and free will. I almost suggested bringing it up today, but maybe we'll do that um, next time. So uh, yes, so get in touch. You can get in touch with us in all those different ways. You can support us, and we really appreciate our supporters. Um, our favorite way is very is the Patre our Patreon account, um, patreon.com slash verybadwizards. You can support us at three different levels. Any level of support will get you a extra audio newsletter that we do every month. We just recorded one before we recorded this episode. We had some really, I think, interesting picks that I think you'll enjoy. You can also uh, PayPal us, and you can 
click on Amazon. This is also a great way of supporting us. Just before you do your shopping on Amazon, and especially for big purchases, just go click on that link, Amazon, um, and this is on the, well, it's on the about page of our website. You know what? We we finally have the ability to create a, br- a whole new support page on our own. So, oh, we do? Um, so okay. I'll be, yeah, I'll I'll like hopefully change it now. It's a feature that was just added to do to add any custom pages. For now, it's on the about page. It may move to its own um, support page. And we really appreciate it. We work hard on this. We're really grateful when people recognize that and when people interact with us and when they support us. Yep. I and I have to just like I'll add my two cents. The the Patreon support really I think has made a huge difference in in I think keeping us going. Yes. Um, and absolutely. I'm, not that I'm saying we would have stopped. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but it is it, it really is is nice to to feel the generosity. Yes. Okay. This is a paper by Justin Tosi and Brandon Warmke. This is a piece on a phenomenon they call moral grandstanding that I'm sure every single listener is familiar with. By the way, this paper was recommended to us by a couple of listeners whose names Yeah, I, was, I, for, I know. Fuck. But but sometimes definitely. when it's on Twitter, it's like really hard to, you know, cuz we get a lot of notifications and so to kind of it would take forever to scroll back and see who was the one that recommended this. In any yeah. case, it's something that we've talked about you know, related to any time I get on my high horse about smugness and you get on your high horse about me being smug mm-hmm. about other smug people. This is a paper that says, look, here's this phenomenon that people have a tendency to do and they describe what it is. They give some ways in which it manifests itself. And then in the last part of the paper, they show why moral grandstanding is bad it's reasons that we should disapprove of moral grandstanding so as a i think someone maybe that's more tolerant of grandstanding uh, <laughs> than i am what what was your just first reaction to this paper i i like this paper it passes the muster for interestingness yeah. Um, ev- even though it's something we've touched on in a variety of ways, like you were mentioning, but we've, we've talked about this um, in the context of like Twitter shaming, for instance, aspects to Twitter shaming that that seems to be driven by this desire to to signal one's moral virtue in a way that might be disingenuous. I, I So I think with, with this description, they're capturing something that's not only really interesting and probably is, is you know, like a deep feature of moral psychology, but also something that is just, I think, way more prevalent nowadays given the varieties of ways in the which internet, we com- yeah. communicate. Yeah. I, but, but I do have a, a, a few issues um, with this. So, so I, and I think that the best way to, to, to raise these is to, to talk sort of in detail about their definition and the, you know, uh, what I do like about this paper, and maybe they, in some ways, hedge they say look we're not saying it's all bad we're not saying that it's all captured by this set of necessary and sufficient criteria they're just pointing to this idea and i think that that's the right strategy for defining this because we all kind of know what what they mean 
Yeah. Right. But and let's let's go let's go into a little more detail, which yeah. they do. And I will say kudos to Philosophy of Public Affairs, which is a maybe probably one of the top two, certainly top three ethics journals. Usually is very technical. There's nothing technical about this paper. Like, yes, they're careful and they hedge certain claims and probably more than they need to at certain points. Right. But I mean, compared to most philosophy papers, this is an easy, accessible read. It's on a really interesting subject, which is already sets it in like the 1% of philosophy articles and something that we I think we can all relate to. So kudos to philosophy and public affairs for publishing this and to the two of them. All right. So let's talk about. So essentially the way they define the grandstanding is um, contributing to moral discourse with the goal, in part at least, of convincing others that you're morally respectable. And here's a quote from it. To grandstand is to turn one's contribution to public discourse into a vanity project. So think of your Facebook feed during the election. You know, depending on whether you have politically liberal friends or politically conservative friends, I think this is done on both sides. It's you you post something or you say something in a public way that's designed at least in part to show how virtuous you are. And um, they give, they said there are no necessary and sufficient conditions. But here's one thing. I wondered what your opinion about this is, is they they say that there's a kind of a threshold view of what counts as moral grandstanding. And so here's what they say. We think that the desire must be strong enough that if the grandstander were to discover that no one actually came to think of her as morally respectable in the relevant way, they would be disappointed. <laughs> so so that's actually kind of strong. Uh, so yeah, I think that, that if there's anything that could be considered a uh, maybe a necessary but maybe not sufficient criteria would be the motivation for uh, for other people to think of you as as morally virtuous morally respectful uh, like it's hard to generate examples without actually sounding like i'm disagreeing with some of these moral stances and i don't mean to say that so i'll give some examples of the the times where i get a little bit annoyed if a heterosexual male in their twitter bio specifies that he's cis heterosexual and that he that you should use the pronouns him and his um i read that sometimes as grandstanding in the sense that again not because i think that it's wrong that we should have a norm of specifying if that's what people want but rather everybody knows that they're going to be called him and his like everybody does like there is what you're communicating is your moral stance. You're not communicating anything that is actually informative. You're not saying, you know, right. like if you were to call me her, that would be horrible. No one's going to call you her. No one's going to call you they. If they see that you're a white male, cisgendered person, they're going to call you him. And so I say that and it kind of, like I, like I said, it kind of hurts me to say that because it's not that I don't believe that this is like a, a, a worthy cause. It's just that I don't believe whether yeah. I'm wrong or right to the sincerity of the person communicating this because like if if you're trans and you really have an issue because it, it's you know it actually hurts when people don't recognize your your gender like i buy that like so by all means but when when you're just trying to communicate that you're an ally like i feel similarly about those like the safety pins like you know that that whole campaign to wear safety pins to oh, show yeah. that what you're was like that to show what 
to show that like you're not going to kick out Muslims and, and that you like black people. Like so, white yeah. people can put them on their on their cardigans, you know, oh, yeah. and and you'll be an ally. Like may, maybe I'm being a bit too optimistic about the state of the world, but I don't think that you know um, Muslims are running around looking for white people with safety pins to save them. Um, and and I think that what they're doing is communicating to other white people more than anything else. The very yeah. the very people who don't need who don't need the help. Um, so, so, but here's the thing. So <laughs> I agree with you. Those are, I think, paradigm cases. Of more okay. So here's, wait, so I was bringing those up to, to make, to answer your yeah. question. So, okay. sorry. so, so I, I agree with you in that. I think that if I were to say randomly contact the person who put, you know, male, cis, um, hetero or whatever, um, and and were to say, hey, you know what, buddy? I think that that's a little bit grandstandy. Uh, that he or him would say, <laughs> you're you're totally wrong. Like this is a cause that I truly believe in, and I'm doing what I can to change the world one step at a time. Like, and and I don't think that he would be lying. <laughs> one safety pin at a time. Yeah, one safety pin. I, like I don't. I I find that it's it's a little difficult to ever think that somebody wouldn't actually sincerely have uh, be doing right. this because they believed in it. And so I think that their their hedge here is it's not exclusively motivated by that. Like um because I think that what it means to have the moral belief that you even want to communicate is probably that you think that it's the right thing to do. But I they, think they that they there recognize is sad that. Yeah. Right? That's that, what that their yeah. condition includes that you have other motivations too, but it just yeah. demands that you be a little disappointed. Exactly. If exactly. that motivation turns out to not be fulfilled. Right. And I think that one of the things uh with this this take on grandstanding is that I think too much of the emphasis is placed on the mental state of the individual communicating that moral signal. And the conscious mental state. Yeah. Here's a big example. So the, in one of their manifestations of moral grandstanding is excessive emotional displays or excessive right. outrage displays. And I noticed this after the you know election day trump was elected that both my facebook feed and in my interpersonal contact with people and even on the podcast with you that's why i sort of reacted inappropriately to your <laughs> i right. believe sincere display but it seemed like an arms race to show how distraught you were at the election result how how much you cried and like my facebook right. feed was like i cried for like three hours that morning when i woke up right. well i cried <laughs> all day and i couldn't go to work well i cried right. like and hyperventilated yeah. and and it was well, just like you know, <laughs> i fuck it i cut myself like fuck it <laughs> right <laughs> but again i do believe these people are genuinely upset by it i would say almost zero percent of you when you were saying that we're saying it so that people would under like would get the signal that you were on the right side of that election right that that's true of most of the people even the most annoying examples of those people like that they weren't doing it for that at least consciously almost at all upon introspect like upon introspection like i it, i may be self deceiving but but it still but, yeah. seems to me to be grandstanding in the sense that they I, I guess maybe like this is nitpicking over a condition but like i think maybe that's too strong a criterion 
for that's uh, yeah. I, I yeah yeah I think so and that's why I think the attribution of grandstanding lies more in in the audience member than in in the signaler um and what do you mean by that so what i mean is that they don't sufficient i don't think that they sufficiently grant that it is mainly grandstanding if you think that their response is disproportionate to the moral issue and that i think that that normative judgment makes it seem obviously grandstanding when you yourself think that the moral issue isn't that important, but wouldn't seem like grandstanding if you did think the moral issue was important. To, to even call it disproportionate or excessive is to say what the appropriate level should be. And I think that, you know, the claim that you're making mountains out of molehills is one that I think should point them to the possibility that what what we take to be grandstanding is generally when we don't agree with the moral evaluation to begin with. Oh, see, okay, now we have something that we can disagree about. Right. I, I'm often like this, where I often accuse accuse people in my mind of moral grandstanding while agreeing with the, the, the issue that they're grandstanding about. Here's another way to interpret the audience. Okay. If you are doing it to an audience that you know already agrees with you, uh, on the moral issue. And so your contribution to public discourse isn't to persuade people to change their mind. Then it does seem like, well, why are you in this public way pontificating about this issue? It's not to persuade people to change their mind and to share your attitudes because they're already there. It's for some other reason. Yeah, I, I mean, so... So, yeah. So, uh, like, to clarify, it's not that I think that, for instance, you disagree with, you know, the right to to be asked to, to be called some other pronoun, right? Or that this isn't, like, actually something that people should care about. I just think that inherent in their claim is that you think that it doesn't require, um, or me in this case, or whatever, like the Trump. So the, the claim of disproportionality isn't a dis necessarily a disagreement that it is a morally important issue, but rather it is no nowhere near as important as you seem to be acting. So I, I agree that that's, that that's often the case. So, and I think actually with issues like the bathroom bill, you know, that yeah. happened in North Carolina or, and also in Houston, like, I think there was there was a lot of just disagreement over how important this issue was. Like, you didn't know stood what a transgendered person was five years ago, and now all of a sudden, like, this is the most pressing civil rights issue that the country is facing. There, I think there's a legitimate disagreement about, even if you're all on the same side in one sense, legitimate disagreement about the priority, moral priority of the issue. But then there's also legitimate like grandstanding when you might agree roughly about the seriousness of the issue, like the degree of seriousness. If, say, you had a pet moral cause that you really were working hard against, like um, the, the treatment of handicapped folks or... or disabled. The, of the disabled, right? So, yeah, thanks. Um, uh, and you... I just want to make it clear that dave pizarro was the one that said that and i'm very opposed to people you're on the right on. side of history is what you're saying i think that you could be accused of grandstanding very easily if somebody didn't agree that this was it, it's really about their priority list not about your 
mental state, right? But they could also accuse you of it. Here's an example. Uh, the guy who wrote the dis the article on disgust in Houstonia magazine, right? Yeah. Um, I think he sort of self-accused, he, he accused himself of mm -hmm. moral grandstanding by canceling that, the, the, so, so someone right. wrote in yeah, yeah. and, and said they were shocked by like that, that, that Houstonia ran an ad <laughs> of that featured an interracial married couple, like a right. real estate ad. Um, this guy very publicly canceled his subscription and he sort of came to suspect that he was doing that not like of course we're all like appalled by that attitude right and i don't right. even think that the people who were very receptive to to what he did and how he went about it are any more appalled than say i am i was shocked when he told me that right what i thought you meant about the audience is that like he knew that the people he was talking to and making a public deal of making this big public deal about, he knew that those people were already on his side and yeah. he was getting a little he was getting a lot of praise and like he got a medal. He got a freaking medal from like the <laughs> San Antonio fire department. He also like actually did so, or like the Dallas fire department. He actually did do something really brave in a fire, but the, like he <laughs> so got a medal also for this. Like he got a medal for like for canceling the subscription of a doctor. How what? come I haven't gotten a medal for any of the awesome shit that I've said on this for podcast? For like saying that the senator with the gay son. Um, yeah, I was right. Shit. <laughs> um, that was yeah. such a clear case of moral grandstanding. By the <laughs> no way. way. No. See, yeah. that's that's the thing. But okay, I, I actually now have to disagree um, with another thing about what you're saying, which is that um, there is nothing wrong to to with with preaching to the choir that is like the point of getting up at a rally at, like at a protest and being on a bullhorn and screaming out these people have treated us poorly no justice no peace you're talking to everybody who's already convinced the point is to energize everybody to act right it's oh, there's, no, there's no, nothing intrinsically wrong with with preaching that point to people not who are intrinsically let, let, let's back up and go through the different manifestations of grandstanding and then why they think it's bad. Because I think they give some reasons to be skeptical of what you're saying. That, But let's talk about the different um, ways in which they manifest itself. So one is piling on. Yeah. And this is, I think, probably the best example of preaching to the choir. It's and and also what you said earlier, the Twitter shaming. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. Twitter is the perfect example of piling on. Yeah, it's one person does a really horrible thing on Twitter, um, and then everybody has to comment on it. Um, and and I do think that it's almost as if those people think that if they don't, then. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, do you have this in psychology? We have this in philosophy where there'll be somebody who is mistreated and maybe it's sexual harassment and then there'll be a petition sent around to sign that you're in support of the person who was harassed or something like that. And that's yeah. like this. It's a tough example because on the one hand, it probably does feel good for that person to know that they have a lot of support. On the other hand, it is one of those things where you kind of feel like if you don't sign the petition, 
Um, yeah, really, like, am I signaling that I'm a dick that I don't, you know, by by not putting his harassment. or him cisgender yeah. on my Twitter bio, am I like pr- like transphobic? Well, yes, you are. I know. Uh, it's almost like a fear of of not communicating um, right. your sort of in group moral uh, views. Um, so the second manifestation is ramping up, and I think this is a this is a big one. Like right, this is the arms race you were talking about. Yeah, this is the arms. So you take something that might be a smaller moral issue and you make it into like the great civil rights battle of our time or and and even worse you make people who aren't on the correct side of this issue you demonize them maybe worse than they that they should be demonized you know i think that this arguably is some of the trans Phobia stuff could be accused of ramping up, you know, because I think a lot of people just need some time to get adjusted to that whole way of understanding sexes and genders and identity. It's such a big thing, and it's such a thing that nobody was talking about. Same-sex marriage is another one of these things where, you know, say someone who's opposed to same-sex marriage, you could ramp up by demonizing them in in ways that are probably disproportionate to the newness of this issue becoming even on the table morally yeah i guess so i guess that that's just sort of illustrating the point that 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 i was trying to make which is that there one could believe that gay rights is sincerely the civil rights issue of our generation and that but but if you don't if you don't believe that, then of course it seems like grandstanding and ramping up. Um, but it's not fully objective, obviously, whether it is or not. There's reasonable disagreement. But I think there are ways to sort of make the case that a certain issue, just because of how recent the 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 topic has made its way to the ethical table, that, I think right. So yeah. I I think a better example is because it doesn't depend on a particular view of the moral wrongness of this, but rather the probability of it occurring, which is Muslims getting kicked out of the U.S. So um, so here is I think a a, a a kind of safe way for me to call grandstanding when um, there's ramping up about how to respond to the perceived fear that trump is going to you know build a wall or kick out all muslims when in fact uh, you know there's there's no good evidence that he's going to do that right you know i'm very very morally opposed to everything that trump says about mexicans and muslims and all that but i don't yet believe that there is a danger of of this happening the example here that they give of ramping up is an exchange Um, we can all agree that senator's behavior was wrong and she should be publicly censured Oh, please, if we really cared about justice, we should seek her removal from office. And then a third person says, as someone who's long fought for social justice, I'm sympathetic. But does anyone know criminal law on this issue? I would suggest that we should pursue criminal charges. And so people. So first of all, I love that that the, the guy's <laughs> name who wants to remove her from office is Biff. Biff. I don't is. buy that Biff is a social justice warrior. Biff would never be an SJW. Yeah, yeah I, I don't totally buy it. If your name is Biff, you're just not a social justice All I can picture is the back to the future. But this is what I'm talking about. This is all of a sudden you take somebody who's, and maybe you're right to think that they're wrong to be 
you know, that their behavior was wrong, and then you're moving it from publicly censured to, like, they should be prosecuted and thrown in jail. Yeah, but I, I guess all I'm saying is that I don't think in this paper the authors clarify well enough that it critically depends on what the senator did. <laughs> right. Right. It could really yeah. be that the senator deserves criminal charges. Right. And so the ramping up might actually give rise to the correct moral solution. Um, in yeah. this case, I take it that because they're calling it grandstanding, that the hypothetical um, is that the senator didn't do anything deserving of criminal charges. Right. Um, but hmm, I, I do think it doesn't fully depend on your opinion that and that this and it's still ways of reliably saying that this phenomenon is occurring so, yeah that's why i brought up the probability yeah, of yeah. muslims getting kicked out because i actually think there is where like what are you signaling like what there's no real danger yet we all agree that it would be a horrible thing but but um you can't pursue criminal charges for something that somebody just sort of like offhanded remark that you know as racist as it might be so what do you think about the trumping up or as a manifestation yeah. of moral grandstanding. Uh, this uh, is definitely going to be something that I would think you would think is def is dependent on your view. Um, but I also think is a real phenomenon. So this is the insistence on the existence of a moral problem where there is none. Right. And so this, I mean, th in that sentence, it's so clear that, that I think that it deserves a little bit more of a, of a normative discussion because... Sure. If I think there is a moral problem and you think there's not, it's very clear that you might accuse me of grandstanding. I, I don't disagree, though. I mean, this is why I think the paper is still good. I don't disagree that there may actually be cases where there is no moral problem and people grandstand and trump up. But I think that it is critical to distinguish between, you know, cases in which it is merely that I accuse you of grandstanding because I don't think it's a moral issue. But in fact, it might turn out that it was like a deep moral. Here's one way to put it. Um, there is a very related phenomenon in social psychology that you've probably heard of um, called do-gooder derogation. Yeah. Right. And so that is research by Benoit Monin um, and colleagues. And I'll put a link to that. And that is when somebody who who does something moral, like they don't eat meat or drink alcohol right. in front of other people, other people start derogating them. Yeah. Now. It could be that those derogators are are accusing that person of grandstanding. Um, but the whole point of, I think, this research, uh, like on how people get accused of being goody two-shoes, is yeah. actually just saying, like, hey, man, the guy's just trying to, like, be, do the right thing. Um, people's defensive response is to accuse them of grandstanding. Right. Vegans are a right. very unfair target of this. I, I can't believe we didn't lead off with this, but they lead <laughs> off with a quote by Kurt Bayer, who says that there's, I got the actual quote. Moral talk is often re rather repugnant. Yeah, you're right. I think that sometimes accusations of grandstanding, the source of it is that you're feeling defensive about your own behavior. I'm sure that's true in cases in cases of me accusing other people of grandstanding. So that's that what said, I I do think out. that this is like, you know, like that, that this is... A, a, a real phenomenon and that it's not always like that it's not sometimes the grandstander if it walks like a grandstander talks like a grandstander <laughs> quacks like a grandstander they're a grandstander sometimes the vegan is a grandstander sometimes, sometimes the person who says they don't have a tv is a grandstander you know i'm trying to figure out though when we might call it 
do-gooder derogation on the part of the recipient right. of the of the moral message and when we would call it grandstanding. And I think that there's at least required a discussion of whether or not you can, um, you know, in some ways okay. this is this is like a, a nob effect. Like I think it's moral. I think it's it's moral. Therefore, it's do-gooder derogation. I think it's not. So here's an example. I will confess that I am uncomfortable about grandstanding when it came to the Syrian refugees. Yeah. So I, I had a serious like set of tweets and probably Facebook posts. I was so mad very publicly on social media about Texas saying they're not going to accept any more Syrian refugees. And now I am a hundred percent in favor of accepting more Syrian refugees. I think it's appalling that people are scared to um, to accept more because of a non-existent threat that they'll turn out to be, you know, major terrorists. And that even if there is a negligible threat, that should be one that we're willing to take for moral reasons. I'm probably grandstanding right now. However, again, I'm talking to people who agree with me on that already. And right. I, I don't know, like you get that feeling every so often. Ooh, I'm like, I really showed them or I really put that, you know, like there's that, like, I think you kind of feel it when you're grandstanding a little bit. It's like almost like phenomenological, visceral, bodily, that like that that little bit of sanctimoniousness like there's a physical sensation of it that it feels good but also like is a signal that you're right i i mean i agree with you like and and to be clear like i think that there are instances of actual grandstanding and that people do it a lot it's it's just hard for me to be able to tease apart my own moral views, right? So, like, you know, like I said, it's sort of like the Nob effect, where it's intentional. If I thought it was, if it was wrong, um, the side effect. Was but here's wrong, a question. But, but here's a case where I still think it's really wrong what the governor and the of Texas uh, Abbott was saying and doing, and I still think that the public attitude about it is wrong. So it's not that. Like, it's not that I don't think it's wrong, and I still think no, it was no, no. grandstanding. Okay, if some somebody accused you of grandstanding and you had to infer what their view on the immigrants from Syria were like what their attitudes were um wouldn't you think that the person who accused you of grandstanding about this they they actually wouldn't have moral views aligned with your own either that or oh they know me pretty well like <laughs> so there's two different questions right there's the motives of somebody who is accusing you of gr moral grandstanding and then there's whether you're moral grandstanding or not we we've already talked about the manifestation for uh which is excessive emotional displays oh there's also claims of self-evidence uh, right right one of their i Again, that one's like, tough. It's tough. That's a tough one. It's tough because what else are you supposed to claim sometimes when you, you know, right. I like really do believe that it, it probably boils down to something like, you know, I wouldn't use the term self-evidence, but but when I talk about like the rights of, of black men not to get shot or whatever, like I, I, I don't feel like I ought to defend it anymore. Like it's right. like, no, wait, <laughs> what do you mean? There's any, is there even a discussion to be had about whether it's okay to like have yeah. innocent people shot you know no but but then on another question if it's like abortion or if it's like you know the right. gun rights or if it's then it's a little harder you know yeah um yeah, if yeah, you, yeah. 
maybe just at a descriptive level, because like it may be that there is just as clear an answer about abortion as there is about, say, human rights for refugees. Um, but just the fact that there is widespread disagreement means that you can't just treat it that way. Like you, you, given given the state of the world as it is that people do disagree about abortion and gun rights, that you ought to take the time to not just end the sentence with self-evident claims. Yeah, and something like Syrian refugees and the threat they pose is more of an empirical question than something like abortion or the right to own a gun or something like that. I mean, there is certainly a lot of empirical relevant empirical information like does the fetus feel pain what is the threat of loose gun laws does that how much of an effect does that have how much risk does that pose so there are relevant empirical questions but when it comes to the right the questions about the right those are going to boil down to appeals to self-evidence and i don't know you know how else you can you can i mean mean, it's hard it's a Kantian. i could just have people read the groundwork (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Just, Enjoy. This is really good. Really nice. Nice to read. I like how, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, deontology is just all about like gut intuitions and the self evidence. But I'm like, no, actually, like if you're a real Kantian, it's so not self evident that this is how morality is grounded. So um, here are the bad effects about this moral grandstanding, which you both engage in and are now defending very yeah. strongly. Meat, meat is murder. Number one. <laughs> It promotes an unhealthy cynicism about moral discourse. So as repugnant as moral discourse already is, it's making moral discourse seem more repugnant and and making people more cynical about when you really do care about Syrian refugees. Now people are making like jerk off motions, you know, like, oh, he's just trying to signal his virtue. Right. To to other people who agree with them, it just makes everybody a little more cynical about the motives. I think that's definitely true, and I think people are cynical. You know, it's like politics. You know, when people engage, play politics, it makes people cynical about politics. It is doing the opposite of what may even be intended, where where it may it may very well be that even though you realize you might be grandstanding you think that you are signaling your moral virtue and that by doing so like i genuinely believe that even even if you think you're grandstanding you're probably saying it's okay i'll take the hit because this is such an important cause it actually might be undermining the view that people have about the sincerity of, of the, the importance of the sincerity yeah. yeah and so i mean i think this is why you know, this is a random example, but there's so many examples of this. But I was reading <clears throat> about George Michael when he died. And, you know, it turns out that he donated a shit ton of money to charities, but he never wanted people to know. But he would do things like, you know, there was an instance in which, like, uh, he overheard his server at a restaurant talking about how she needed to pay off her student loans that were, like, 10,000 pounds. And he, like, literally just wrote a check for 10,000 right. pounds um, and, and left it there, right? And... um and because he didn't ever talk about those things, it seems as if they were truly sincere. Like he just acted on. Them. He just yeah. did the right thing. He didn't talk. Um, and I don't know if that's. God, the I right wish I had been around George Michael. Seriously, like in just, a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd been around George Michael in like the back in the park. of the park. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, totally. uh, 
but now like that's very exceptional that people yeah. will do stuff like that in secret a lot of the time they don't do it in secret and so there's multiple ways of interpreting their motives and if there's too much moral grandstanding then people will be unduly cynical about the motives yeah. uh of everybody when they engage in this practice, which is really important, like moral discourse and moral debate and, you know, being public about your views. That's a really important thing. That's one of the, the glues that holds society together, however, weakly. And you don't want to make that something where nobody trusts anybody. Yeah. And in fact, there's, there's a paper called Tainted Altruism, um, when doing some good, so when doing some good is evaluated as worse than doing no good at all, and basically, yeah. like and this is George Newman and Dalen Kane, uh, uh, they they basically show like that that if you do something altruistic, sort of in quotes altruistic, um, but the but you have mixed motives clearly present, people just completely undermine it. So even that's the senator with yeah. the gay son. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So mixed motives, boom, it just takes away yeah. from the yeah. If it's if he had just stayed anti gay marriage, like everyone would have been fine with it. No, it really. was <laughs> people would have I was listening to a podcast today actually where uh it was a, a, a it's a, a rap podcast and one of the guys one of these dudes who's just a hip hop blogger podcaster, he voted yeah. for Trump. And part of the reason that he said he voted for Trump was that he just appreciated the ex <laughs> The explicit xenophobia, <laughs> like you just he, in the race. He's like, yeah. I don't know. Like maybe it'll just make it. It'll make it like an actual people talk. Uh, people talk about it. Like you got to respect him for just putting it out there. Like that's yeah. actually what. <laughs> so another bad effect is outrage exhaustion. So they say uh, it, it can devalue public moral discourse through what we call outrage exhaustion. If you make everything. The, the worst moral problem out there, then it dilutes the... It makes it impossible to sort of distinguish between the degrees. I have to admit, like, I feel this all the time. Um, like, the it, it's not even that I think that the signal has been diluted genuinely. It's that I am tired of feeling moral outrage. So, like, when I'm right. reading my Twitter feed and there's, like, you know, some douchebag did this horrible sexist thing um and then this other person did this horrible homophobic thing this other person did this horrible racist thing and i i get i genuinely do grow weary of feeling moral outrage like i can't it's hard for me to muster um, right right and and, I, and 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 like you need to save it we have a finite resource of moral outrage so you need to save it to thing for things that you the, the things that you should most be moral outrage about it's probably not casey affleck it's probably not that you probably shouldn't waste the limited amount not that i don't know what happened there but it's probably not like <laughs> the something you should devote your limited resource of of moral but, outrage but see i would say something else which is you know, you kind of have to pick a cause. And actually, some people might be outraged and they might genuinely be outraged and they might devote their energy just to that cause. And I think that the problem is just more in what the Internet is and what Twitter is that I am hearing everybody's outrage. Right. right? And, and what I feel like is happening is that we're just knee jerk signing on to outrage 
um, because we're getting bombarded left and right. Like, here's another person yeah. to be outraged by. I think right. the right does it just as much, right? Like, I, I absolutely, yeah. I follow some some very very conservative people on Twitter, and they're constantly being outraged just as much. It's- I mean, this is part of what my beef is with not the social justice warriors, but the social justice warrior critics. That, right. that you know, you can find really annoying examples. My stepmother, who I love very much. Um, she does this all the time. She, she'll find like quotes of people yeah. that are really annoying. And, th- but the problem is it will be ramped up to, this is a threat to academic freedom. This is a, this is infecting all the college campuses rather than just a select few. Yeah. And it makes it so that it's very hard to distinguish between real threats to academic freedom and just, some annoying, you know, student groups at Oberlin or something some person said on Twitter or some blog post on Salon. There needs to be a way of understanding what like what the difference because <laughs> yeah. one day we may real face a real real genuine threat to a- a- academic freedom. Right. So there I may really be a chilling effect, you know? Yeah, I actually often feel a sense of irony when I read so much about academic freedom and free free speech being completely eroded. If it's that eroded, how the fuck am I hearing about it so much? <laughs> I kind of right. like clearly you have an outlet. <laughs> like clearly there's plenty of people who are allowing you to say all this shit. Okay, what are some other ways it can involve emotional displays that are disproportionate to their object. This is sort of grist for your mill. Right. And yeah. because grandstanding often takes the form of ramping up, a, pul- a public discourse overwhelmed by grandstanding will be subject to this cheapening effect. I guess this is more the, the moral exhaustion, is that yeah. people are... Um, and finally, that it cr- uh, contributes to group polarization. I think this is a really interesting one and one that I think is something that we need to take seriously because I think a lot of the, you know, if you look at the election, it's such a good example of this. You take the things that Trump did, which were legitimately bad, and but if you make too big a deal out of them and make him out to be some a moral monster above and beyond what can reasonably be said that he was, that makes people irrationally defend him more than they would. Or the example they used is after a a shooting, like a mass shooting somewhere, if you ramp up the debate so much and express so much outrage and anger against the opposing views, the uh, the opposing views are going to dig dig in and entrench their views on the other side. Same thing with Hillary's emails, right? Yeah. It, what started out as, yeah, she did something sleazy, turned out to be she should be in jail and she's irredeemably corrupt versus she did nothing wrong. This polarization effect is something that I think is a real real danger and has had and has had very obvious negative effects on our country no i think you're right i think this is probably the the biggest problem that's exactly exactly what's happened right so uh as you ramp up because you're convinced and here's where i think that there there can be sincerity at all of the baby steps that lead to people um being extraordinarily 
distressed at Hillary's emails or Trump's Trump's uh, xenophobia that they then they become so vocal that they hit the threshold where the other side hears about them. Yeah. And when <laughs> right. when that's the first you're hearing of it, and you weren't convinced at all that that was right, it like you may even be right to express that. Like it's not going to do much good for that yeah. to be what what tips over into leaking onto your conservative Facebook friends or vice versa, right? Um, it, you know, there's, you know what this really reminds me of? Do you remember Leave Britney Alone? Do you remember that <laughs> yeah. video? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this kid is having just a hysterical fit at how people are treating Britney Spears. And yeah. it's as if his whole family has been massacred before his eyes. <laughs> yeah. And there is where like, hey, look, I believe being like a neurotic fan of Tupac and being depressed when he died, like I get what it means to feel emotions about somebody that you, you know, even though you don't know them. Right. But um, I don't think he was doing Brittany any favors by no. posting that. And yeah. so this is where I think, I, I think there is the main point of this paper, I think pragmatically is that we should be a bit more morally humble and act rather than speak or signal i think that's like i yeah and this is why you know i started out the discussion by questioning their criterion because i actually think you i agree with you that a lot of this is done by people who are sincere every baby step of the way and you still even if you're being sincere even if you're vlad like I've Vlad is sincere. If, shout out to Vlad. Shout out to Vlad, right? <laughs> totally sincere. It can be helpful to just check yourself when you're, you know, doing one of these manifestations. Even right. if it's a sincere effort, do I need to be doing is this the most effective use of my public voice right now or my time or my mental energy right. and you know what are some motives that might not be transparent to me for what i i mean i know that i've started to think about those things more recently yeah i i and i this is where i think that our i think this is just a clear case in which the moral the moral mechanisms that that evolved in the human mind for small scale societies are increasingly, you know, for interacting with your neighbors and and being really outraged when your neighbor robs right. you and going out and telling everybody that they robbed you because that's exactly yeah. how, you know, cooperation is enforced and all, that this this has become ill-suited for for modern times in such a way that it is doing more damage. Um, so you really, you know, maybe the lesson here is to uh, there is a a level of absurdity to the sounds of some claims when another person who's a who's on the other side hears it for the first time yeah and there it's important i think to not risk even if it's a sincere expression to not risk making your position sound absurd to somebody who's hearing it for the first time yeah right like um like it there's there's one example that i almost hesitate to bring because i had a huge argument with a friend of mine about this but i think it's just a really really good example of of from an outsider's perspective, sounding completely absurd. And granted, there might be good reasons. So this is from um, in, in uh, British Columbia in Canada. Sometimes uh, people 
especially in like humanities talks or in very liberal departments, will, before they even start speaking, now say I'm a physicist, like, and I'm giving a talk. Before they begin talking, they say something like this. Before going further, I wish to acknowledge the ancestral, traditional, and unceded Aboriginal territories of the whatever people, so they'll put the name of the tribe in there. And in particular, the First Nations, like whatever, Squamish, uh, in Metro Vancouver, on whose territory we work, live, and play, on whose territory we stand. So, you know, it's just, it's... And so I got in a very, very big argument about this um, with somebody from British Columbia because I thought that this was the the most sort of navel-gazing moral signaling that you could yeah. possibly imagine. Right. Um, and they thought that I wasn't being respectful to the fact that this land was unseated or whatever. And and the, the argument really ended up being about whether this would ever make any difference. So my friend was arguing that, yes, indeed, people would know about it. If you just went to that talk and you didn't know about the, the poor treatment of the, the First Nations people, then you would hear about it. And I just thought, I don't think so. If I didn't know about it by then and I heard about it for the first time in this way, I would be like, why the fuck are you saying that right before your physics talk? <laughs> Like, yeah, that that might be. They should have used that as their paradigm case <laughs> yeah. of moral grandstanding. And by by all means, people from Vancouver, just you know, tell me how wrong I am about this. Yeah, like I don't mind, too. but it just really does seem like, from an outsider's perspective, this it, it seemed ridiculous. And and I can see why people, when Morrissey in the '80s wore a shirt that said "Meet is Murder," they thought it was absurd and did and and that he's like crazy. Um, and nowadays, maybe not. But I don't think that he was doing any favors to the vegan movement by being so uh, so high horse sometimes a defense for grandstanding is well you know there were times where people thought that saying slavery was wrong was moral grandstanding and there were times that um, exactly i was gonna go yeah, there but i didn't like, want to go there like yeah. I, I i i mean that's true but i mean it's it's similar to when people defend their work of art by saying well nobody liked van gogh's paintings you know like right. that doesn't mean yeah, i'm a, that I'm a lone voice that, that, that this is right that, 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 that you're the moral genius like <laughs> just because there were moral geniuses in the past uh yeah. I, I will say one i've been generally i think very favorable to this essay here's one thing i think i disagree with i think sometimes they they're too cynical about how people use this practice so i'm going to read a passage here he says individual they say individual instances of grandstanding can be disrespectful in a different way when grandstanders aim to show that they are morally respectable they sometimes implicitly claim an exalted status for themselves as superior judges of the content of morality and its proper application. Grandstanding can thus be seen as a kind of power grab. For instance, one might employ grandstanding in order to seek greater status within an in-group as a kind of moral sage. I know, fucking Martin Luther King. What an ass. Alternatively, grandstanders sometimes dismiss the dissenting claims of others as being beneath the attention of the morally respectable. That happens, of the morally respectable. This is an objectionable day way of dealing with one's peers in public moral discourse because, in general, we ought to regard one another as just that peers. We should speak to each other as if we are on relatively equal footing. Now, it could be that I just don't hang out with these people um, that do this. 
at like yeah. gr- like this kind of power grab trying to claim the status of moral sage because i definitely wouldn't have patience enough for this person to have any kind of lasting relationship but i just i i i i don't see this that often even like the people you're talking about the people who lead off their physics talk like i don't think they're trying to claim exalt they're not engaged in a power grab they're not trying to claim that they're like a moral sage i think it's misguided for all the reasons that you state but this is almost an example of them grandstanding or ramping up ramping up the charges against grandstanding (laughs) right Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know many people who claim to be moral heroes. I think that rather it's me showing that I make that I pass muster for this group. It's it's that I am as good as everybody here. Not that I am better. It's trying. You're trying to get into the club. You're not trying to be club president. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the that's the number one thing that kind of bugs me. And and it is the point that they start off with, which is that. If I think that you're saying it just to get into the club, it really bothers me. Yeah. Right. It, it. And I don't know what it is. Like my claim that sometimes it's just that I I might not disagree um, that I might not agree with the club or what. But but the minute I get that flavor, and that's why I think that it is just much just find the most effective way to change things. Sometimes that's just doing things and 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 as sort of leading by example and talking that much about it. it. Yeah. yeah. Like I don't. I've like, uh, like change.org petitions that get sent around for, you know, where, where I'm convinced that it's not going to make a, a lick of difference. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I'm sure people think I'm a horrible person if I didn't sign this person getting fired unjustly or this person getting treated poorly because, but I, just, uh, all anyway. right. So I think so, we're, uh, where we kind of agree mostly about this. Yeah. Or at least we do more now than we maybe did at the beginning. But I actually think that just to make clear, even with the disagreements, like I think this is a, an insight, a really insightful paper, and and yeah. it hopefully it gets other people talking about it because because um, I think that it is something to be deeply worried about. Good job, Justin and Brandon. Yeah, good job, yeah. guys. You wrote like a like I didn't know philosophy papers like that this were published in like top journals anymore so i'm i feel like i feel i feel good like i'm now I'm you happy. can energize now you can actually totally start submitting all those manuscripts you have that you, you yeah. thought would never get accepted <laughs> i mean once i get this honor book done <laughs> that's right we're waiting bated breath um and i'll definitely contribute to the edge question next year next year yeah so come up with a good one john because he's totally listening by now <laughs> he's totally listening <laughs> Just a very bad wizard.